Father, thank you so much. As we get into this passage this morning talking about love and the goodness of your love, the correction of your love, oh, how I pray that this church, these souls would experience your love. We love you because you first loved us. And so, Father, with that truth this morning, we now embrace each other and embrace you as a gift. Lord, may we love one another well as a means of displaying to the world that we are disciples of Jesus. We are explaining by our love for one another what the world should be like. And so, Father, manifest your presence in this place. Open hearts for the one this morning who says, I'm unlovable. May that shame narrative be destroyed by the truth of the gospel. For the one this morning who comes guilty, finding themselves condemned. Father, may they experience the freedom of innocence granted as a gift and acceptance from it loving Father who embraces them completely, wholly, and totally. Merciful God be with us in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You're going to have to bear with me. I came back from England with a little bit of something going on in my throat. So if I start to lose it, just listen carefully. 1984, that ever-wise philosopher, Tina Turner, asked this question in this way. You must understand, though the touch of your hand makes my pulse react, that it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl. Opposites attract. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. Oh, what's love got to do with it? (laughs) Got to do with it. What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it? (laughs) Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? What an interesting question. I think that Tina Turner in 1984 wisely, sagely, philosophically, emotionally, socially, spiritually was asking the same question that human beings have asked from the beginning, and we ask through the duration of our life until the day we're done. What does love have to do with it? Encompassed in that question are sub-questions, multiple questions. What is love? How does love operate? Am I loved? Do I love? What does love have to do with it? And Paul, the apostle, and really the Bible, the story of God working in the world, would answer that question, what does love have to do with it? Absolutely everything. Everything has to do with this concept, this truth, this notion, this reality of love. What we have here in 1 Corinthians 13 is probably next to Psalm 23, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. It's actually a hymn, a song of sorts, that Paul inserts into this extended rebuke and corrective writing towards this church in the city of Corinth. In context, 
This song that Paul puts in between 12 and 14 is designed to deliver the Corinthian church from behavior that was bad. It's actually a rebuke. And so though this text is read at weddings, and rightly so, though it's stitched onto our grandmother's pillows as something beautiful and poetic, which it is, its tone is actually firm and concerned about the Corinthian church, and from that we can derive concerns that we should carry in our own Christianity, be aware of, be looking towards Christ to bring redemption in. Three things that we learned from this song this morning is Paul seeks to correct the behavior of the Corinthian church by bringing their belief in right order with the gospel. First, love is the beginning of all things. Second, we learn that love is the way of all things. And third, we'll close this morning by understanding that love actually is going to be the end of all things. First, Corinthians, Taproot Church, Paul presents this song to them saying, Corinthians, you need to understand, Taproot Church, you need to understand that love actually is the beginning of everything. All activity, all words, all work in this world has at, at its epicenter, at its fountainhead, its source, its center, its beginning is actually love. And what Paul is teaching the church and what we're learning is that we can have all sorts of outward actions and behaviors and words and works that appear religious and moral and right and good and even look loving outwardly, but if they are not centered in, began by and fulfilled through love itself, it's all meaningless. These three categories that Paul presents to the people in Corinth, these behaviors that they were operating in, these things that they were exemplifying and pursuing, they were speaking, they were seeing, they were sacrificing, they were doing all of these things outwardly with the appearance of love, but they were driven by envy, by jealousy, by selfishness. And so Paul, rather than slamming down on them and screaming at them, sings them this song in 1 Corinthians 13. And he explains to them through this beautiful hymn the dangers of living an outwardly looking life that appears to be loving, but inwardly having the stench of death about it. A couple things here that Paul talks about. He says, look, guys, they were big on tongues, which we're going to get into next week. They were big on prophesying. They were even speaking, Paul says, in the tongues of angels. No commentator or scholar that I read over these past three weeks has any clue what the tongues of angels are. But the Corinthians sure did, and they were all about it. <laughs> and Paul says, you can be talking religiously, Christian. You can be eloquent. You can be charismatic. You can have a draw to your personality. You can be winsome, persuasive, powerful, prophetic. You can be all of these things and sound so spiritual. But Paul closes that little segment there by warning them, if it's not rooted in, founded in, began in, centered in, motivated by legitimate love for the one being spoken to, you might as well 
walk about banging on your gong, clanging on a cymbal. And I'm telling you, I have a drum kit in my basement, and anytime some kid is at our house and heads into the basement and discovers that drum kit, it doesn't sound nice. <laughs> it's not eloquent or persuasive. Seeing. Paul says, Corinthian church, taproot church. Yeah, you may have prophetic powers. You can look out on society and see the patterns. You, you're seeing the demise. You understand what's happening. You can read in the newspapers and you have this inward sense of what may be coming down the pike. You may even be prophetic in utterance and an ability to, to, to give to people what is going on in their current moment. Corinthians, Catholic Church, you may have all knowledge. You may have read every systematic theology on this planet. You may, listen, you may be listening to all the podcasts. You may have all the answers to all of the complex questions. You may even have faith. I believe and I receive so much so that Mount Rainier looks at you and trembles because you can move it by the depth of your faith. And Paul says... If any of that is rooted in this world's ways, is not truly selfless, is not truly ambitious about receiving and walking in the love of God, you could move Rainier and Paul says it would be nothing, nothing. You could repeat every systematic theologian and wise teacher you've ever learned from and it would be as nothing. It would be empty vanity. And then Paul gets so serious in this song where he says to them, Look, you can sacrifice, you can give to the point where you actually give your body to be burned. But if it's not rooted in love, then you've gained absolutely nothing. Now, one may ask the obvious question, how can you sacrifice something and give of your own life to the point of death and not be motivated by love? Well, there are literally going to be this week hundreds of thousands of young and old people going into their Jobs, sacrificing their families, their health, their time in the name of making it without a second thought. Jihadists will literally blow themselves up in the name of gaining that eternal paradise, in the name of what we would consider from our perspective, hatred. And so Paul warns us that we can be working outwardly using our words outwardly with wrong inward motivation and wrong inward realities that are not centered in love. What Paul is telling us is that the beginning of all things is not our outward words. It's not our outward actions. In actuality, the life of Christianity is first and foremost living out inwardly what we are, and what we are is loved sons and daughters. That's where it starts. It does not start with what we say, and it does not start with what we do. Our Christianity begins, is lived, and ends in this one sole place. I am a beloved son of a kind king. That is who I am. That is how I live. That is why I do what I do. That is why I make the decisions that I make, solely because inwardly I know that I am loved. Before we move on from this point, let's ask this question, why? Why is love the beginning of everything? And I answer it in two ways. First, 
Love is the beginning of everything, the center of everything, because of who God is, because of who the creator is. The Bible reveals a God who is Trinitarian. He is three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one essence. This means that God exists as an everlasting community of love. Jonathan Edwards would go on in this amazing sermon, The Reasons for Which God Created the World, and explain that love by definition gives of itself. And so God, who is an everlasting, eternal community of love, the Father saying to the Son, I love you, man. The Son saying to the Father, I love you, man. That's Danny's paraphrase of the eternal glories and <laughs> communication going on. The Spirit saying to the Father and the Son, no, I love you guys, man. This is what's going on. Out of that love, love gives of itself. And so God, out of love, creates the universe. Stars are flung into the expanse. Grains of sand are placed on the shores of the seas. Waves are given their boundaries. Mountain tops are raised. Valleys are spread. And in that land, he places Imago Dei, image bearers, Adam and Neva, for the sole purpose of giving himself to them out of love. And so our very cosmology for you scientists in the room, the Big Bang, if you hold those views, happened because of love. The beginning of all things is love because of who God is. And because the epistemology and the cosmology, that is the way we know things and the authority of things, the beginning of all things, that's the cosmology. Another big word for you, the ontology of all things, the reality of all things is love. Love is the way things should be in the world. Love is the ordering and the way things should be in the world. And that is the second reason that love is the beginning of everything. Love is the beginning of everything because of who God is and love is everything in the world because love is the way that the world should be. And this is why all of humanity from the beginning, Adam and Eve to Tina Turner in 1984 to you and I today, we write our songs about love. We watch our romantic comedies about love. We write our poems about love. Our philosophers think about love. Love is the great ideal of our culture because love is the way that things should be because of the God of love who made all things. So we move on this morning. Number two. Why is love the way? We ask this question, if love is the way that things should be, what exactly would that look like? What does love look like in this world? And Paul explains to the Corinthian church that there is a certain way that love behaves and it is the way that things should be. Four ways this morning, four ways that love operates in this world. First and foremost, we see in verse four, that love is a verb, biblically. It's not a noun. Yes, love is something, but love in the world is an action. It's a verb. One commentator that I was reading says, many observe that Paul does not use adjectives to describe love. Oh, it's flowery, it's beautiful, it feels nice, it's a good kind of tickly thing that happens in our belly. No, Paul doesn't say any of that. Paul doesn't describe love with adjectives, but with verbs. 15 of them in three verses. Love is dynamic and active, not something static. 
Paul is not talking about some inner feeling or emotion. Love is not conveyed by words. It has to be shown. It can be defined only by what it does and does not do. And so love is an action and a decision made by the lover in the world for the sake of the beloved. The second way of love in this world and love being the way of all things is that it is actually the opposite of our sinful ways. What Paul is doing here for the Corinthian church, especially in verses 4 through 7, is he is giving to them the antidote for their destructive and diseased behavior. He is giving to them the antidote for their divisiveness, their divisions, for their constant fighting, for their suing one another. Paul is giving to them the antidote for their perversion when it came to their sexual deviance. One dude was sleeping with his mom. For their drunkenness, they're getting wiped out at communion. Paul is saying the antidote is this way of love, the opposite way of living in which you have been living. And not only was love going to be the antidote the way of healing in Corinth, love is the way of healing the world. The world. The church is a microcosm of what should be and what will be in the world when things are as they always should have been. Love will be the governing directive of our relationships one with another in this world. Number three, love is an action Number one, it's a verb. Love is the opposite of our sinful behavior, Paul says. And so it's the antidote for what we're doing wrong in the world. And number three, love is really what brings about fullness of human flourishing. The way of love brings about fullness of human flourishing. Let's just read those passages real quick and look at it in this light. Think of it this way. When we read these passages, verses 4 through 7, all of us find ourselves saying, and whether you're here with a friend and you're just checking out Christianity or somebody just dragged you here, or you're a full-blown, I believe Jesus is alive, Bible-thumping, Bible-preaching Christian, when we read verses 4 through 7, we all say, yeah, that's what would feel right if the world operated this way. Let's read it. Imagine, let's, just, let's do a little thought experiment here. This is off notes, so let's see if this works or not. Here we go. The world is patient and kind. The world doesn't envy or boast. The world isn't arrogant or rude. The world doesn't insist on its own way. The world isn't irritable or resentful. The world doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The world bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see? Do you see where the gospel's taking the world? Us. This, this is where we want the world to be, flourishing. And it's this way of love that brings flourishing. And what has happened is sin has deformed and perverted our self-understanding and definition and experience of flourishing. And so now, because of sin, rather than flourishing as God always intended, walking in the cool of the garden with him day by day in intimate relationship, we pursue flourishing as we define it, which means that we no longer rejoice with the truth. So take for example, we believe because of sin that to truly flourish, there should be no cap on our sexual behavior or on our identity. 
And so we live in a world where flourishing is defined by do as you will, define yourself as you desire in the moment. Love, though, says that's not true. That's not true. The God who is eternal love created you, put parameters and definitions on you and around you for your flourishing to deny those parameters, whether it be gender or sexual behavior, is to actually fall from flourishing. It's to fall into disease and diminishment of fullness of humanity. And so the church exists in this world to to, to choose to love one another, to live opposite of the world in patience and kindness without being irritable, without being envious, rejoicing in the truth, loving one another as an expression of what fullness of human flourishing is. And then finally we see here the fourth way of love is that love just flat out don't give up. It just does not give up. Look there in verse eight, love never ends. Again, with me in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love's got a real grittiness to it. Love's got a strong jaw, can take it on the cheek a couple thousand million billion times from a hundred billion people all through history, and love does not give up. It just keeps going. This past week, I was reminded of a story of this father-son relationship that so exemplifies this notion of love enduring and love hoping and love never giving up and love bearing the burdens. Dick Hoyt and his son Rick Hoyt have run over 950 races together as Team Hoyt. They've done 60 marathons together as Team Hoyt. They've done six Ironmans together as Team Hoyt. But the great glory in Team Hoyt is that Rick, the son, was born with severe cerebral palsy to the degree that his hands are clenched and he's paralyzed. He can only move his eyes. And so his father, in love, bears the burden of his broken son's body, has a uniquely designed wheelchair in which he pushes him in these marathons. A raft within which the broken body of the boy is placed so that the father can swim in the triathlons and pull him. A specially designed seat within which the boy's burden of his broken body is placed so that the father can ride the bike in the triathlons. Just Google Team Hoyt and watch some of these videos. I'm not ashamed to say, snot coming out of my nose, blubbering my eyes out because the father bears the burdens of his sons and daughters' broken bodies. It is so gospel. And the love of God endures. This man, in the name of loving his son, endures 15-hour triathlons so that his son who cannot speak cannot move, can only communicate by moving his eyes through a computer screen that then has the voice analog, can live a life of freedom and fullness of flourishing. It's gospel. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Love is the way of all things. And finally, as Paul sings his song over this broken and sinful church in Corinth, he teaches them that love is going to be the end of all things. They were so focused on their outward actions and what was going on in their world right in front of them that they had forgotten that this world and all of history is careening towards one consummate end, and that is, as the waters cover the sea, so the glory and the love of God will be known throughout all the earth. There is no other end for all of this. It is unstoppable. The train is not coming off the tracks and it is a runaway linear progression towards the world ending in the loving embrace of its creator, fully redeemed, resurrected humanity moving towards that. And so Paul says, Corinthians, you're so focused on these people that are speaking in tongues and you've got this big thing about the prophetic voices in the church and you lift them up and you put lights on them and you make such a big deal of them. Those things are but mere windows into the world to come. And though now you are not fully mature in the things of eternity and love, we all are like children So we kind of speak in gibberish with little bits and pieces of understanding here and there. There's some tongues, there's some knowledge, there's some prophecy, there's some Bible. But we're like children in our understanding of love. And so our childlike talk, Corinthian church, taproot church, the church, it will pass away. And what will come will be this fullness of love. No longer will we be looking through the veil, through this mist, without clarity. What's coming is fullness of love. And I want to tell you, That some of the greatest theologians, the most knowledgeable writers and thinkers and influencers of all of Christianity and all of history, some of these men and women, they had experiences where they saw what the end would be and it undid them. It's as if all of their great theological writings and thinking, when they actually got a glimpse of the end of everything, they all said to themselves, my writing and my thinking is a is as nothing. I'll give you just a few examples. I'm in a church history class right now. Super, super awesome. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, the, the president, first president of Yale, greatest philosopher that the, that the West has ever produced, especially North America, without question. Brilliant, voluminous writer. Uh, very, very difficult to read. Super brainy, super smart guy. He gets on his horse one day, decides he wants to go out and just contemplate God and get some fresh air. And God gave him an experience of his love, a vision of his love. And the way that Edwards described it was as if he was undone. Let me read to you the quote. Edwards says, in this experience that he had with God, I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. This continued as near as I can judge, Edward says, for about an hour. This kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. I wanted to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone 
to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Blaise Pascal, great French scientist and philosopher, after his death was found in one of his garments, one of his coats, a document that he had sewed into the inside portion of the coat that he read. And it was a document that explained this brief experience that Blaise Pascal had had with, with this everlasting, ever-living God. And Pascal was brilliant. His knowledge was incomparable. His, if you have not read the Penises, they're amazing. And yet Pascal would write this, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, joy, 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 tears of joy. This is life eternal. I now know it. You are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ, may I not fall from you forever. I will never forget your words, my King. Thomas Aquinas, this 13th century Benedictine monk. Aquinas' goal, as far as I understand him, at least at this point, another brilliant thinker, was to take Aristotle and complement Aristotle with good biblical theology. His magnum opus, his greatest work, Summa Theologia, is this massive, massive tome that's just brilliant, absolutely stunningly full of Gorgeous theology about the glories of God and philosophy and all of these things. But somewhere along the line, shortly, two years before his death, Aquinas had some experience with God. We don't have a record of it. We don't know what it was. We just know that suddenly at the end of his life, before he had even finished Summa Theologia, his greatest work, his life's work, he stops writing completely. His friend says to him, Will you not write again? Why are you not writing? And Thomas Aquinas explains in this sort of coded, mysterious way that he had had some sort of vision of God and that in comparison, the vision that he had had of God, this experience of the end of all things, in comparison with all of his writing, he said to his friend, all of my writing is as straw to be burned up. The great apostle Paul. Pharisee of Pharisees, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis that the Hebrew people ever produced. PhD of rabbinic theology, zealous, wise, is on the road to Damascus and is given a vision of the risen Christ. Falls to his face in utter humility and dependence, being lovingly told by that risen Christ, you will go and bear witness of me and suffer. In the midst of his sufferings and his serving of that Christ, he would say, I'm compelled by this love. In one place, this man, we believe it's Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, is given this vision of the end of all things. He says he was caught up to the third heaven. Thanks, Paul, for explaining what that means. He was caught up to the third heaven where he says he heard things and saw things that if he tried to put human words to it, would completely diminish. You see, the end of all things is this inexplicable thing that right now our spirits are saying, yes and amen. 
our spirits are groaning, oh God, please. And so our tongues, this preaching session this morning, the songs we sing, those are but little childish verbiages, little, little, little ways in which we give sight and glimpse of this world to come. And as we close this morning, it is that love, that incomprehensible love that began all things, that is the way of all things. It is that love that is the end of yours and my striving our religion. It is that love that is the end of our sin. It is only through being loved, experiencing cerebrally, psychologically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. It is only through actually knowing, believing, and experiencing that love that we can live out what Paul is singing over the Corinthian church. Make no mistake about it. Paul is not trying to modify the Corinthian church's behavior. He is not saying in this song, Corinthian church, you need to be more loving. Corinthian church, you need to be more patient. Corinthian church, you need to stop suing each other. He is not saying that at all. He is saying, Corinthian church, you need to know how loved you are. And when you know how loved you are, you won't sue each other. When you experience how loved you are, you won't be envious of each other. When you experience how loved and secure you are, you won't boast. Do we understand that when we boast, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to be loved when we're arrogant, it's because we're insecure. We're, we're painting that facade around us so that we can have our identity and we're diminishing our flourishing. But if we experience love, then we're secure. We don't need to boast. We don't need to position ourselves over anybody. We don't need to be arrogant. If we experience love, we don't have to operate sexually in such a way that we sell ourselves to find that sense of intimacy and closeness because we have it in us, working through us. We don't have to be operating against truth in the name of gaining money and greed and position and status. No, we live in love and in light of the truth that we're secure and content and at peace because the richest king in the universe is our dad. And it's really going to be okay. Should we end up in a tattered tent one day, the glory that will be ours is without comprehension. It's without measure. But if you don't believe that, then we're going to be the Corinthian church. We are the Corinthian church. Because as the song sings over us, and our sin dwells within us, it's hard to remember the lyrics. We don't believe like we should. So week by week, we come back to Jesus the King, who tells us of his love from the cross. Week by week, we remember that Jesus spoke perfectly. Not only did he speak possibly in the tongue of angels, but the angels ministered to him, cared for him. He could call upon a thousand legions of angels, but he didn't so that he could speak his love over us. Jesus prophesied perfectly without mistake so that we could make mistakes in the way that we understand the world. Jesus understood perfectly the mysteries of God, the indwelling realities and the relationship between the Trinity and why God did what he did when he did it and how he did it, and he did all of that for us. Jesus had faith 
As he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done to move not Mount Rainier and the mountaintops that he had created in this world, but to move the impossible mountain of our sin and our deformity. And through that, he was saying, I'm going to move all that obstructs you from receiving my love. I'm going to move it for you because you can't. I'm going to take that burden off of you to show you and give you my love. Jesus is only patient with you, only patient. Some may find themselves in the midst of the gospel being heralded, saying deep within the soul, I've done too much. He's finally given up on me. Lie! Love says patience, constant patience. Jesus is never irritated with you. He's never resentful of you. Oh my gosh, here he comes again. Give me a break. Can't you get this? That's not living in accord with the love that God has for you. That's a lie. When you come to him for the 100 zillionth time with the same damnable sin and you say to him, I'm so sorry. Love receives you, embraces you, has already washed you, heralds you innocent, pure, perfect, pious, and clean. And his song, like Paul, is sung over you in delight and great joy, not to modify your behavior, get it right next time, but to bring you to such a deep place of belief that though you will never get it right, you're okay, you're accepted. You are loved because his blood has washed you. When our faith fails and we don't endure and we don't believe all things and we lose hope, Jesus endured all things, believed his father and entrusted himself to a faithful judge as he was hung on a cross. Jesus was separated from the father for you so that we would not be separated from him. Jesus bore the burden that we couldn't bear and soon and very soon this veil will be torn away ripped away whether it be the veil that we pass through via death or the return of the king and we will see him face to face and the end of all things won't be an ooey gooey tickly feeling in our stomach that's diminished by the next lustful intent of our heart it will be Jesus himself eye to eye face to face what does love have to do with it Everything, everything, everything. Jesus, I'm so in love with you. Your love is like a raging fire. It burns away the deformities and the disease of our hearts. We love not out of effort, not out of strife. We love because you first loved us. And every person in this room, every person listening to this sermon online has to fight the good fight of faith. And that fight is to believe that this love is unconditional, sacrificial, for us. As we partake of communion this morning as a, a community of saints 
who sin. A community of sinners called saints by this great and loving God. May we experience again anew and afresh the fullness of this immense love. May we swim in the Pacific Ocean of your acceptance and your forgiveness of us. May we abandon the self-righteous attitudes and actions and religious endeavors that we make to make ourselves acceptable to you and to each other. May we just be disheveled and undone with Jonathan Edwards. May we lay in the dirt, longing only to be annihilated by love. Sermons and songs sung, they are as straw when the end comes, when the veil thins, when the presence of the king is near. And the end of all things is to see you and look into your eyes, no matter what suffering you brought us through, and to hear you say, I'm so in love with you. I'm so thankful to have you. And to enter into an eternity of love is our end. God, it's Sunday morning, May 26, 2017, but eternity breaks into this place. Bind us together. Help us not to make silly efforts to love one another, but to be loved by you and through that to love one another. And as we are loved by you, may we love this world the way that things should be. As we partake of communion, may we be confessing and washed in the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.